Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we've been going through the book of Amos, and uh, we are at uh, chapter 3. Now the next three chapters uh, are each uh, a, a prophecy um, to the nation of Israel, and uh, each prophecy begins, each chapter is one prophecy. They're in verse 3, verse 1, 4, verse 1, and 5, verse 1, and they begin with, hear this word. And so we're going to be looking at the first of those three this morning in chapter 3, verse 1. And so it says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is the first of the three prophecies against, uh, and this is against the whole family of Israel, which the Lord had brought out of bondage in Egypt. Now, I mentioned when we, when we first got into Amos that Amos is primarily a prophet to the northern ten tribes, primarily to the tribe of Israel. It's called, to be called Ephraim. Um, but here, this prophecy is speaking to the whole family of Israel. Israel being Jacob, who went down with his family. Joseph was already down there. Joseph brought Jacob and his families down uh, to Egypt. There were about 70 of them, and they stayed there for 400 years. And by that time, there were a couple million when they were leaving uh, Egypt. And, uh, and so this is referring to Jacob's sons and their children, their descendants, the tribes of Israel. And so this would also include, this prophecy would also include the southern tribes, two and a half tribes known as Judah. And so this is for the whole family of Israel God told them, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And you really have to go back to Abraham. Of all the people alive at that time, God chose to reveal himself to Abraham. Out of anybody else that was alive at that time. Of all the people alive at that time, God chose Abraham to be a father of a great nation. In fact, Abraham is referred to by God as his friend. Um, and, you know, when we look at that, you go, well, what's so special about Abraham? Well, to be honest with you, nothing was special about Abraham. It was God's grace. God is the one who chose Abraham. He didn't choose or earn that right. It was just God pouring out his grace on one particular man and his family. Paul, you know, in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, he talks about this. He says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? I mean, what's the benefit of being a Jew? He says, Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. See, Abraham and his descendants. God revealed his will to Israel. God revealed his law to Israel. They were blessed by it. You know, the Levitical dietary laws... You know, don't eat pork. Uh, don't eat roadkill. I mean, it doesn't say that literally, roadkill. But basically, don't you know? You find a dead animal on the ground, just don't start eating it. Uh, you know, don't uh, eat bats. Now, I don't know. That didn't have to be in the Bible for me. I mean, I don't really get a, you know, I don't get a charge out of eating bats. But God gave them these dietary laws, and you know, those dietary laws, especially you know, all of those, basically, they kept the Jewish race healthy and alive. 
There was a blessing. There was a benefit to God's laws. In the 1300s, the Black Plague devastated Europe. Untold thousands of people were dying. And uh, people were trying to figure out what's the cause of this plague that everybody is dying from. And they were looking around trying to figure out where it came from. Well, evidently, because of the dietary laws and the just the social laws of the Jewish communities, they didn't, I don't know if they die, if any of them die, but they didn't die as much as, as the rest of the population of Europe. And so they started looking at them and go, oh, they're the ones, they're poisoning wells. And so they started persecuting the Jews there during that time in Europe. Um, but basically, you know, God had given them these dietary laws and it was a blessing to them. Sometimes we look at God's law and we think, man, God's, you know, he's making me, you know, wait until marriage, until I have, you know, premar- you know to have sex or anything like that. And man, God, it's just a, you know, it's such a heavy load. Well, you know what? It's a blessing. God's blessed us. It's, it's for our own good that he's done these things. The Levitical social laws, you know, they were created, they created order and justice in society, and it didn't have that before then. God gave them a social economic system that meant, you know, the poorest in the land would be provided for. Um, and there were so many ways that God's laws benefited the nation of Israel. But with all those blessings of God revealing his heart and his will to to the children of Israel and God revealing his law to the children of Israel, with all those blessings, with that privilege, there also was a great responsibility. Jesus said in Luke 12, For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And so with those blessings, with that, with the privilege and everything that God revealed, he was also, they were accountable to him for what they knew. The family of Israel could not expect God to overlook, overlook their sin and total disregard of him. And I think sometimes we feel, you know, because we're God's people, you know, I've been, I've been born again. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ that somehow when we sin now, that he will excuse it. You know, it's just, you know, we don't, we can just... You know, he, he just winks at our sin. The truth is, God loved Israel too much to allow them to continue down the path of destruction, and that's where they were heading. And he loves you and I too much to allow us to continue down that same path. In Hebrews 12, verse 5, it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. When you and I are disciplined by the Lord, it's because he loves you. He he sees where you're heading, and he doesn't want you to, to go that direction. Now, Amos here in chapter 3 is going to ask a series of questions. And, you know, they're they're rhetorical questions, but basically all the answers are no. But each one is meant to illustrate the law of cause and effect. There's a law of cause and effect. And he begins here with with, uh, verse 3. says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? And that word agreed means to meet someone at an appointed time. So basically, you could say if, if you want to walk together, man, you have to agree together where you're going to meet. You know, Teresa and I, my family, we've traveled cross country in caravans. My brother, you know, we moved from California to Minnesota, and my brother, he was single at the time, uh, he drove one of our vehicles. I drove a moving truck. Teresa drove another vehicle. We had kids spread out in cars, and we drove in a caravan cross country. We did that once. 
And then we went back to from Minnesota to California, and then we did it again. My brother did it again with us, and, and we kept doing that. And you know, it was so important to be on the same page. This was before cell phones. Cell phones makes it a little bit easier nowadays, but it was before cell phones. We had to say, okay... If you have to, someone in your car has got to go to the bathroom, this is, you know, how do we signal each other? Where, what do we do if we get separated from each other in heavy traffic? You know, you have to figure out how you're going to travel like that. Um, I ride motorcycles and, uh, it, you know, uh, a motorcycle. And, you know, going with buddies or friends on motorcycles, it's the same deal. You have to be in, you know, how do you, how do you signal one, one another? Where do you stop? You have to be in communication with each other to arrive at the same destination at the same place. God created man to be in fellowship with him. He wants us to walk with Him. And we have to be on the same page with God. We have to be in agreement with Him. God created man to be in fellowship with Him. That's His desire for each one of us, to be in fellowship with Him. But sin broke that fellowship. And it all started back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they sinned, after they sinned against God, listen to what it says in Genesis 3, verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? Of course, God knew. But scriptures here seems to imply that God would daily walk in communion with Adam and Eve in the garden. There'd be this daily fellowship and God would just start walking with them and, and talking about creation. Who knows what they, how they communed with one another. But guilt of sin caused them to hide. And as a result, fellowship was broken by sin. And God, as He always did, came into the garden, called out for Adam because He wanted fellowship with His creation. You know, the Bible has so much to say about walking with God in fellowship. Why? It's amazing. I started doing a word search on walking and walked, and, and, and it's amazing how many verses deal with walking with the Lord. Why? Well, that's because that's God's heart. That's His heart's desire for you and I to be in fellowship with Him, to be walking with Him. And, you know, for us, we, 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 we broke it. I mean, we, we caused it to fall apart by our sin. We broke fellowship with God. And He loved us so much he wanted to do something about it, and so he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us to make a way for you and I to once more walk in that fellowship with God. Like I said, there's a lot of people in the Bible. There's a lot of verses that mention. I just want to mention a few here. Enoch was a man, the Bible says, he walked with God. In Genesis 5.21, it says, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Here's a man who walked. Now, it, it, it's kind of, what did it mean like after Methuselah, you know, before Methuselah was born, his first 65 years, you know, uh, Enoch didn't walk with God, and now he is? I, I don't know. Maybe it's just the, way, the wording, he always walked with God. But evidently, for all these years, Enoch walked with God. You know, Enoch, by the way, is a type or a picture. He's an, he's an Old Testament picture. He represents the rapture of the church. If Enoch, who is a picture of the church, and you know when I'm talking about the church, I'm not talking about this building. 
I'm not talking about the institution of the church. I'm talking about you and I. Enoch is a type or a picture of you and I who are going to be raptured. Well, if that's true, then wouldn't it make sense that we too would walk with God in fellowship just like Enoch did? Enoch walked with God. Well, what was distinctive about Enoch's life that he was described as having walked with God? Hebrews gives us a clue. In Hebrews 11, verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Wow, Enoch pleased God. Well, how did he please God? He continues, he says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I think that's a clue there. Enoch had faith in God. Enoch believed that he existed. Enoch believed that God would reward his diligently seeking him. Basically, he took God at his word. And he pleased God. When you and I take God at his word, it pleases God. Noah's another man. Genesis 6, 9, it says, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. He was a just man, that just or righteous. The term, let me give you this definition. It's hard for me to just say it, but it says the term bears primarily a moral or ethical significance. Someone or something is considered to be just or righteous because of conformity to a given standard. So in the case of Noah, he lived his life in accordance with God's standards. The Bible says he was perfect in his generations. That means he was blameless or complete. And when used in a moral sense, this word is linked with truth, virtue, uprightness, and righteousness. Let me read to you a definition or or what John Gill, a commentator, said about this, talking about Noah. It says, not that he was perfectly holy or free from sin, but was a partaker of the true grace of God, was sincere and upright in heart and life, lived an unblemished life and conversation untainted with the gross corruptions of that age that he lived in, which he escaped through the knowledge, grace, and fear of God. Therefore, it is added that he was holy, upright, and blameless in his generations, among the men of several generations he lived in, as in the generation before the flood, which was very corrupt indeed, and which corruption was the cause of that, and in the generation after the flood, or in his ages. So in other words, in the several stages of his life, in youth and in old age, he was throughout the whole course of his life a holy good man. That was Noah, and Noah walked with God. He had that faith and that fear, not that fear of God as as far as God's going to squish me or he's going to clobber me, but a, a reverence of God, a fear to honor God's word and enough of a fear to live by God's standard no matter what the culture around him was doing. And the culture around Noah was terrible. And yet he lived untainted by that, by the, by the culture around him. And he walked just and blameless before God his entire life. It's so sad when you see Christians, they start out with that race with the Lord and they seem to be doing so well and then something happens and all of a sudden they're no longer walking with the Lord. All of a sudden, it's like they've given up or, or they've gotten distracted by the things of this world. And now all of a sudden, the things of the Lord just don't matter as much to them anymore. It's so sad to see that. Noah wasn't like that. Noah was constant 
with the Lord in his relationship. Abraham, we also know him as Abram. In Genesis 17, verse 1, God spoke to Abram and said, When Abram, uh, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Well, Abraham did walk with God. He believed God, the Bible says, and it was counted to him for righteousness. What was, the, what was it that he believed God? He didn't have any children. He was 99 years old. God said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And he believed God. And he even obeyed God when it appeared. Remember, remember Isaac, the story of Isaac? Isaac was born, and, and here's the promised son. Here's the one who your generations, all the multitudes of people are going to come from you. And then God says, hey, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice that, your one and only son. Can you imagine how Abraham felt? Here's the one thing. God's, God answered his prayer. He's, he's finally got a descendant. And now God says, I'm going to take, I want you to offer him to me. You know what? Abram believed God and he obeyed God. And he obeyed God to the point where he was ready to slay Isaac as a sacrifice. And he had so much faith in God that he figured, well, I don't know how God's going to do it. My son's going to die, but God's going to, he's faithful to his promise, so he's going to probably raise him from the dead. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews. That's a faith that proves itself by conviction. You know, it's one thing to say, I believe these chairs are good and sturdy. But if you don't sit down on them all the time, it's like, do you really believe they're sturdy? But if you go, you know, I believe that chair is sturdy and you sit in it, you're, you're, you're acting upon your faith. And that's exactly what Abraham did. Well, in the New Testament, there are many scriptures as well that speak of walking with God. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. God wants us to, wants to walk with you. But when you start getting involved with the idols of this world, you start getting involved with other things or you get unequally yoked with unbelievers, that fellowship that walking with God, it's hampered, it's hindered. This was Israel's problem. They were steeped in idolatry. They were unequally yoked to idols. Well, Paul tells you and I in Galatians 5.16, he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. What does that, what does that mean, walking in the Spirit? Well, later on in verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Walking according to, to those things, allowing the Holy Spirit to live through you. And Jesus has made that way possible for you and I when He died on the cross, when He ascended to heaven and He gave you and I the Holy Spirit to live in us. In Colossians 2, It says this in verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And you could look at that verse a couple ways. As you have received Christ or since you have received Christ. 
Either way, it applies. So walk in him. Listen to it this way. As you receive Christ. In other words, when you were first saved. Think back to when you were first saved or when you first rededicated your life to the Lord. Man, think about that fellowship that you had with the Lord. How you were just, you know, you, you were just on fire for the Lord. You were just, you were walking. You were seeking him. You were trying to be in fellowship with him all the time. Well, walk with him now like that. Or you could say, since you have received Christ. In other words, if you truly have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and salvation, well, your walk should reflect it. Would those of, who know you and I outside of these walls, you know, I look around here and go, all these people, everybody here, they're walking with the Lord. But let me ask you this, outside of these walls, would your coworkers, would your family members, would your neighbors, if I were to ask them, does this person walk with God? Would they say Yes. He says, having been rooted, which is a perfect participle. I'm not really good at grammar, but having been rooted, being built up and strengthened. You know, that, that whole verse, what it's talking about is being, it's the being process, in the process of being built up and being strengthened. Uh, and look at it, it says, rather than being rooted and built up upon him, it says rather being rooted and built up in him. And it's only through that fellowship with the Lord, established in or by your faith, abounding with it with thanksgiving. It's really a key for you and I. Well, what's the cause and effect of Amos 3, verse 3? Well, if you want to walk together, you need to walk in agreement. And Israel's problem was that they were no longer in agreement with the Lord, and therefore they were no longer walking together. That's, that was God's desire for Israel. That's God's desire for you and I as well. Well, he asks the next question. Verse 4, chapter 3. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? The lion apparently won't roar unless it has prey. And this lion roars because it's about to pounce on its prey. Well, what's the cause and effect? Well, in this case, actually, we have an effect. The effect is a roaring lion. What's caused it? Well, what's caused it is it has its prey in its sights, and it's about to pounce. So what are you talking about? It boils down to this. God doesn't make empty threats. God's roaring. He's roaring through his, through his prophets, and he's about to pounce in judgment on his people who have turned their backs on him. Remember Amos 1-2? The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. The Lord is roaring and He was about to pounce upon Israel with judgment like a lion pounces on its prey. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. There's a cause and effect to how you and I live our lives. Verse 5, will a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? So, it, you know, what it, basically if there's no trap for the bird, there's no reason that the bird's going to all of a sudden fall to the ground. But if there is a trap and an animal triggers that trap, a bird or whatever, squirrel, gopher, whatever it is, and that trap is set, is set and it gets triggered it's going to catch whatever's in the trap. You see, if the people of Israel had not sinned against the Lord, 
they would have been blessed and prospered. God told them that. He says, if you follow me, if you obey my commandments, I'm going to bless you. And he, he gave all these things of how he would bless the children of Israel. They would be prosperous. They'd be blessed. There's so many ways that God would bless them. But since they were sinning against God, the Lord, without repentance, now they're going to trigger the trap of God's judgment. And basically he's saying, nobody's going to escape from that. You're not going to escape from God's trap. Verse 6, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? You know, if a disaster warning sounds, the people of the city will be afraid. Every Wednesday, I work from home. Every Wednesday, I don't know what time it is in the morning, all of a sudden the tornado sirens go off in Rochester. And practically every Wednesday, I'm like, it looks clear out. And I go, oh, that's right, they're tested. Every Wednesday, they test the the alarm systems. But it kind of, it always kind of like, oh, that's right. You know, one time I, I had to, I don't know if you know where Donnelly, Minnesota is, but um, I needed to go out there to uh, meet my wife's mother um, out there. She was, it was a deal with a house out there. I drove out there anyways, and, and I took my motorcycle out there, and my granddaughter's birthday was that same day, and they had a birthday party, party for her in the afternoon down here in Rochester, so I was a good three, maybe four hours away. And so I got done doing the business that I had to do there in Donnelly, which is near Alexandria. So then I get on I-94, and the clouds, it's just getting grayer and grayer and grayer as I'm heading towards the Twin Cities. And uh, pretty soon it's raining. You can barely see anything. I'm like, i got to get to my granddaughter's house. And so I'm, I'm flying down the road. It wasn't, I'm glad my wife wasn't with me, but she wouldn't, wouldn't have appreciated that. But anyways, I get to, you know, where 94 and, is it 694, 494? You know, you start going along that corridor there. You go around the side of the city towards Bloomington and stuff. Well, anyways, I'm going down there, and literally tornado sirens are going off as I'm driving by them. I was like, woo, you know, I'm like, oh, boy. And uh, it's one thing to be in a car. When you're exposed on a motorcycle, it's just like I was really afraid, and with good reason. It was a bad storm. Um, And so what he's saying here is if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? And then he says, if there is a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Now, it makes it sound like God is the author of any evil that happens, like tornadoes or whatever. But the context here is judgment for sin. And what Amos is saying is when judgment comes against the cities of Israel, everyone should know that it was the Lord who has done it. It's not going to be an accident. It's not going to be fate or bad luck. It will be of the hand of the Lord because he's judging his people. Verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. The Lord warns people through his prophets before he takes actions. Context again is judgment. God is not going to just strike with judgment. You know, all of a sudden God, God you know, judges someone, strikes them, and he's like, well, what happened? Why? God always sent his prophets to warn his people. That disaster would strike. Why did he do that? Because he wanted as many as possible to repent of their sins. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Last Friday night and Saturday, we had a prophecy conference here. We, we live-streamed it, uh, Jan Markell's Understanding the Times conference. And, you know, I've been to prophecy conferences before, and, and it's, you know, they're fascinating. This one blew me away. It blew me away, Literally. Because it's amazing how fast things are changing right now. 
You know, you know, the Bible talks about the end times being birth pains. You know, when you first, when you first, now, I don't know, I've never had birth pains, but I've, my wife's had four children, so, you know, I kind of have a little bit of experience watching her. <laughs> but, you know, the, the birth pains, they first start out, and, and they're not that severe, and they're not that frequent. But as you get closer, all of a sudden they're more severe, more severe, and pretty soon they're, they're just like uh, uh, Michelle Bachman was talking about. She's like, you know, pretty soon they take over. There's nothing you can do about the pain. The, those birth pains take over everything. They just, they're just, they're, there's nothing you can do. They're, that baby's coming. And she said, we're in that point now where the birth pains are getting sharper and sharper and much more frequent, which means that the Lord is coming soon. And for you and I, man, we've got the word of God. We've got, we know what's going to happen. We have the prophecies in the Bible. And so for you and I, as we see those things happen, what are we to be doing? We're to be warning people. Man, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. You need to repent of your sins. You need to put your faith in Christ Jesus. Life is not going to continue as you know it, the way it is right now. This stuff is coming to an end. Verse 8, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy. Impending judgment is about to fall on Israel. And Amos is like, man, I can't be silent about it. I got to speak. For you and I as Christians, we see these things happening. We should be, that should be spurring us on to go, you know what? I've got to share this with those people that I love, for those people around me. They need to know. Because I tell you what, right now, people are looking at the signs of what's going on out there. There's a lot of perplexity. Why is it going? Is, is, you know, what's going to happen and everything? We have the answers. In fact, Ezekiel warns this, or the Lord warns Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33, verse 6. He says, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from uh, from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel, and therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul." We're not responsible for people's response to the gospel. But we are responsible to share it. We are accountable for that. To whom much has been given, much will be required. Unlike Amos, we see judgment coming. We can't help but warn our generation of what's coming. Verse 9. Proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. See great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her. For they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Now, Ashdod was one of the cities of the Philistines. And, of course, we know who Egypt was. That was one of the the enemies of Israel, too. God is calling the enemies of Israel, the Philistines and the Egyptians, basically to assemble at the northern kingdom, Samaria, and to observe God's family being judged by God. And, you know, the world observes gleefully 
when you and I were outspoken followers of Jesus Christ and we stumble in sin. The world sees it. They're watching you and I. And it enforces their Christophobia. I just came up with that word yesterday. Christophobia. Maybe we say Christophobia. Are you a Christophobe? You know, they have, we're called Islamophobes. We're called homophobes. We should start calling people. You start writing that in your, are you a Christophobe? It's just start. Anyways, that's how I think about stuff. Anyways. But look what he says about them. They don't know how to do right. Here's God's people. He gave them his word. He told them how to live. And they've gone so far away from it, they don't even know how to live their life right. What a sad testimony. Verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you and your palaces shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. What's he talking about? Well, basically, the picture here is a lion devouring a lamb. And about all that's left, all, you know, he's already, he's, he's, he's practically eaten the whole thing. The only thing that's left basically is a couple legs, maybe the hind legs, you know, trying to pull it out of its mouth or maybe a piece of an ear. In other words, God is saying when calamity strikes, very few, if any, will escape punishment. And, you know, that's exactly what happened when, when the Assyrians invaded Israel, when the, when the uh, Babylonians invaded Judah. Basically what they did was they took everybody, especially the strong, the healthy the, the rulers, I mean, they, they took all the good out of the land and, and basically they left behind the very poorest, the very infirmed, the very oldest, and they basically just left them in the land with nothing. They were devastated, but they didn't go into the captivity. That's what sin does to you and I as well. The consequences of sin. It saps your strength as a believer. Those things that you sinfully treasure are plundered. And all that's left is a weak, frail person, a shell of once once a vibrant Christian who's on fire for the Lord. I've seen it time and time again. Someone who's backslidden in their walk with the Lord. There's no joy in their lives. They're just a, they're just a shell of what they once were. And it breaks my heart when I see that. But that's what sin does when we don't return when we don't repent of it, when we don't change our lives and come back to the Lord and walk with Him. Verse 13, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. So now he's describing what this destruction is going to be. He says, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off. What is he referring to? He's referring to when Jeroboam, when the nation split, the southern tribe, two and a half tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and the half tribe of Manasseh, and the ten northern tribes, they became two separate kingdoms. And Jeroboam was the king of the northern tribes. And he was afraid that the people of his land were going to go down every year to Jerusalem to visit at the temple. That as they go down there, they'd start going, you know what? Man, these are my brothers and my sisters. Man, this is my family. Man, I miss being with my brothers in Judah, or I miss going to the temple. And so you know what he did? 
He created a counterfeit religion. That's what he did. He created two calves. He put them in two places in the kingdom. And basically, he made it convenient for the people so that they could worship God in their own time. Not when God prescribed it. Not when God commanded but when they wanted to. And he basically set up his own calendar. And basically, they could worship God. It was really easy for them. They could worship God the way they wanted to worship God. Isn't that something we hear today? And yeah, it's that, that, what you do is fine, but I, I want to worship God the way I worship God. That's exactly what was happening in the northern ten tribes. You could worship as you wanted, when you wanted, in the way you wanted. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like it's your God, because you, you could do it the way you want to, however you want to. And so God says he's going to destroy that altar. He's going to take away that false religion that everybody was following He says, I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house, the houses of ivory and the great houses. You know what that reminds me of? These people that are so wealthy, they've got a house over on the Cape Cod or something like that, and Martha's Vineyard, and I've got a house over here. And it's, It's speaking about the opulent wealth of people. They had a summer house. They had a winter house. They had houses of ivory. You know, they've got these, these huge houses that are so fancy. It just speaks to me of the materialism in our society today. The big, fancy, expensive, large homes. The focus on materialism. You know, it's interesting, speaking of counterfeit religions, that was one of the things that came out in the prophecy conference, was that in the last days, Jesus says there's going to be a great spiritual deception. There's going to be a false religion. And you know, I didn't realize this, but you know when the Pope came and spoke here in the United States? You know, and the person who shared that went and went th- read through all the transcripts of any speech that the Pope made. You know what the Pope talked about? Global warming, climate change. You know what he never once mentioned? And he had an audience of, of who knows how many millions or maybe even billions of people watching. He never once mentioned faith in Jesus Christ, ever. We know that he visited that clerk down in Kentucky who, you know, she wouldn't sign the marriage, same-sex marriage licenses. You guys know all about it. And she was thrown in jail for it and everything. The Pope apparently went down and, and visited her. She was really encouraged by it. But you know what they're saying now? The Vatican is saying now, well, well, well you know, we regret doing that because we didn't want to send the wrong message. They didn't want to show that they were really supporting her. Isn't that sad? You know who else he visited? He visited an old friend who has a homosexual partner, has had that partner for like 30-some-odd years. His his buddy went down and visited him. There's a counterfeit deception. There's a counterfeit religion. There's a a deception. And I'm not just slamming the Catholic Church. If you're Catholic here, I'm not trying to slam the Catholic Church, but I'm saying there's a spiritual deception that's coming upon this world. And it looks really good, but it's deception. And it's a false religion. And God's going to judge that as well. Well, the other thing is, talking about this opulent wealth and everything, I don't know if you caught the news last Wednesday. I shared this with a couple of people before church. Michelle Bachman was one of our speakers at this conference, and what she said just really, really opened my eyes. But, you know, this last Wednesday, you know, Russia, they've been building up for a couple of weeks all this stuff in Syria. And... uh and now all of a sudden, now they're flying in there in Syria. And, you know, the day after President Obama and Putin met 
on the sidelines in the UN to talk about Syria and all that stuff and have this agreement about, you know, we're not going to interfere with each other. The next day, a, a three-star general, Russian general, goes to the embassy there and says, uh, we're doing sorties. They're doing, they're doing operations in Iraq or in Syria, and we don't want you in there. You, you need to get your people out of there. Cause, and basically the U.S. just kind of pulled back and said, oh, that's kind of interesting. What happened, and, and she was talking about how years ago it was known as the Pax Britannica. And what it was talking about is the global, the global you know, control of the world basically by uh, Great Britain. You know, they were all, all throughout history. There's been different empires that have been kind of like the global empire. And this Pax Britannica, it basically means that, you know, while Great Britain was, this, was this, the, the superpower of the world at that time, there was kind of a general peace. They kind of kept the order of, of, of their empire, basically. So there was kind of a, a Pax Britannica. There was a kind of a peace there. She, she said in 1943, that baton was handed to the United States. And it became Pax Americana. The United States became the great superpower. And while we were the superpower, uh, you know, there was relative stability in the world. But she said last Wednesday, we, we didn't pass the baton. We dropped the baton. And a couple communists picked it up. And ISIS picked it up. And they're going to become the next superpower. And, 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 and basically, it's, and, and if you understand what Russia, and, and not just Russia, but just about every nation in the world wants to do, is they want to get away from the U.S. dollar. They, they, they you know, all, all of our, our money, you know, everything in the world basically is kind of focused on, it's based off of the dollar, the value of the dollar. And they want to have their own currencies, their own, they, they want to get rid of the dollar, because if once they do that, our whole economy is built on inflated money that's just been printed. It's, there's no value to it. And as soon as our money system, as soon as they switch to another one, this, what you and I know is this, this nice life that we're living, it's going to collapse. There's going to be a global economic crisis. And, you know, why do I bring that up? Well, if you are a believer today and you're clinging to materialism in this life, it's frightening time. It's like, what do I do? How do I protect myself? Well, I don't think there's anything you can do to protect yourself. If you're caught up in materialism this morning, if that's your focus, money's your focus, you know, getting that fancy house or getting that retirement, I tell you what, it's going to go away. It's going to go away. You and I as believers, this isn't our home. Heaven is our home. God wants us to walk with him in this generation. And so I just want to encourage you this morning that, you know, it, it, yeah, it's frightening times in one sense. But, man, I tell you what, today there's not more exciting time to live than today. Because there's a lot of evil. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. But you and I don't have that uncertainty because we know we have the answers. And it's not arrogant. It's truth. We have God's word. And so I want to encourage you this morning to... The Lord wants fellowship with you. He wants to walk with you. But you have to deal with your sin. You, have, you, have, you, can't, you can't ride too, you know, you can't be on the fence. You've got to repent of your sins and turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you this morning. This morning, we're actually going to have communion. Communion with the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. He died on the cross for our sins. He paid the price for us. Luke, you can come on up or whoever else is. I don't know. Um, he paid the price for our sins. And... 
the, way, the reason why he did that is because he wanted communion with you and I. And so communion is open to believers in Jesus Christ. If you have a relationship with him, this is open to you. And it's symbolic of just what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We're, we're eating a cracker. It just represents his body that was broken for us. We're going to drink a little cup of juice. Basically, it represents his blood that was shed on the cross for us. I love that old hymn, there's power in the blood. You know what? There is power in the blood of Jesus Christ because if you confess your sins and repent of them today, God is faithful and just to cleanse you of your sins. He's faithful. That blood that was shed 2,000 years ago, it still has the power to cleanse your life today. Praise God for that. Well, we're going to celebrate communion, but I'm going to first uh, um, lead us in a prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word and the reminders of of the prophecy that you gave Amos. Father, we can just see a parallel in our times with... uh, destruction imminent on the horizon, Lord. Father, I pray that we as believers, Lord, that, Lord, you might stir up our hearts, Lord, to be focused on the main thing, and that is you, Jesus. Lord, we we repent of not being in fellowship with you, Lord. Lord, we want to come back to you this morning. Father, I pray for anybody here who just needs to rededicate their life to you this morning, Lord that even in this time of praying before we have communion, Lord, that they might just repent of their sin and, and just turn back to you, Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray if there's anybody here who does not have that relationship with Jesus, with you, Lord. Lord, maybe they've just realized that they've been following a counterfeit religion. Father, I pray, Lord God, that even now they might repent of their sins, Lord, that they might recognize that you died on the cross for them and that you might invite that they might invite you into their hearts to be their Lord and Savior. And then they can enjoy a true communion with you this morning. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings. Lord, I pray that we as believers, Lord, would just seek you more and, and seek to walk with you in these perilous times. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.